Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Connor Ratliff can be seen twice a week performing live at the Upright Citizens Grade Theater in New York City with two of its most prestigious improv groups, The Stepfathers on Friday nights and ASCAT 3000 on Sunday nights. Ratliff also served as the warm-up comedian and erstwhile presidential candidate from The Chris Gethard Show on public access as well as cable TV, and he stars in a Comedy Central web series, Dollar Store Therapist. More likely recognize him from scene-stealing work in critically acclaimed TV series such as The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Orange is the New Black, or Search Party. Ratliff also created and stars in a long-running UCB staple called The George Lucas Talk Show, where he interviews real comedians and celebrities while pretending to be the Star Wars creator. The documentary film crew is currently capturing what makes all of that work, and Ratliff took a moment to sit down with me to talk all about it, as well as the ups and downs of his comedy career. So let's get to it! So, Connor Ratliff, uh, last things first. Before we get into you... Me? Yes. I guess we should, uh, we should find out, when was the first time you were aware of who George Lucas was? Um, I mean, probably as early... as Probably pretty early, because I was three when I saw Star Wars. It, it, it was like the... It got re-released a year after it came out. So, in 1978... One of the earliest memories that I know is a real memory is watching Star Wars and that... Because I remember uh, it was released with a Pink Panther cartoon, which was unusual. Yeah. So I've been able to clock it. I remember the Pink Panther cartoon. I guess the Pink (laughs) Panther cartoon I remember first Mm -hmm. because it was shown before the movie. Uh, And then I would imagine within, you know, relatively short amount of time, because as a kid I was always interested in who made things that I liked, you know? Oh, really? Yeah, that... that, uh, because I think I, I always had an eye on like, would I like to make things as well? So I was all I was always interested in like, who directed the cartoons I watched, or you know who you know wrote and draw the comics that I read. You know. So did you know who Hannah and Barbara were? Or? Oh yeah, yeah. And I had very critical opinions of them even at an <laughs> early age. You know, uh, because even though I watched a lot of those shows, I, I was very much into like golden age animation. Mm-hmm. And I sort of looked at Hanna-Barbera and Filmation as these companies that took this art form and then made it cheap for TV. So then, like, when when I was a kid, like, animate, like, since I became an adult, over time, computers and technology and things, you can make really good animation in various ways on limited budgets. But back then, the way to make animation for TV was to make it less good. You know, and that was just like, that's how we'll save money. Um, and I think TV animation generally is a lot better now than it was when I was growing up. You know, it was sort of the, a low point in terms of like, let's just repeat the backgrounds or let's right. have, you know, we'll like reuse footage and, you know. Right. I, I guess that, that sparks a memory with me of like learning that you could do animation just with like little flipboards with paper. Yeah. And just, that's I, just what it was was animation yeah but, and, 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 and the thing that would make it good is just like if the drawing was bad on a TV show mm-hmm. it's just because it was like they weren't hiring the best people or taking the, the time to do it right uh, but to come away from Star Wars and go okay not only is this something that's going to stay with me from childhood into adulthood but to think this is somebody's vision and who is yeah. this person yeah uh that's unusual for a child to... Maybe. I think it was, you know, uh, I think this was probably because my dad was always, he, he's always been interested in, uh, you know, uh, he had books about the making of movies and mm-hmm. Hollywood and things like that, and, and he had been an actor, and, and he was, my dad uh, was a TV show host in a local TV, um, Where he was else? a weather in Jefferson City, Missouri. Okay. He was a weatherman, and he also hosted a kids show. So I think that probably had a lot to do with it, just in terms of I was aware that if you watched a show, someone made it, and that was a person. How did people in Jefferson City feel about Mr. Smith Goes to Washington? 
Does that have a Jefferson City reference yeah. in it? What's the reference in it? I've only seen that movie Jefferson once. City. Oh, is he? Yeah. Uh, I, I it's been it's so long from. since I saw that movie. No, it's never come up. <laughs> I've, if that's true, I've never heard anyone talk about it in Jefferson City. Uh, People will be furiously Googling this right now. The I know that there was a... There was a... Because there was a point early on where I uh, made, I wrote and acted in a, a, a small like indie movie that played at some festivals, mm-hmm. and we filmed it in Jefferson City. And the last movie that had shot in Jefferson City uh, was directed by uh, Irvin Kershner, who directed oh. Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, I, I, the name of the movie escapes me, but like that was the last movie that had had anything filmed in Jefferson City. Gotcha. So okay, so you're aware of George Lucas at an early age? Yeah. But it's not until 30 years later that you become him for the first time. Um, or did you Well, no. Or did you ever dress up as him as I never, a child? I never dressed up as him, but I did. Um, I was a member of the Lucasfilm fan club in uh, 84, 85, I think. Okay. Or, I think it was 85. And it actually went out. It actually closed during. Like it went out of. It went defunct. It became defunct during the time that I was a member of the Lucasfilm fan club because it was at the low point of Star Wars. Like the Return, right. Return of the Jedi. Return of the Jedi had, had come finished. out, and, and so and Lucas had talked about there being nine films, but then then nothing never was happening it for a long the, time. The toys stopped selling. There wasn't a lot of new Star Wars content, and so I there was a point where I found my old Lucasfilm like uh, newsletters. And, they're, and I was like, I wonder, I couldn't remember why I stopped being a member of this fan club. And then I realized I got to an issue where there was a, an open letter from George Lucas saying, you know, like, hey, we're going to shut down the fan club for a while and see what happens. Because none of the stuff he was doing at that time, it was all stuff like Labyrinth and Howard the Duck and the yes, Ewok Howard movies. The it, it was not a, a high point in terms of hit movies for him. But the first time that I started pretending to be George Lucas was uh, in college. Um, I would do it with, with my... Where did you go? Uh, well, it wasn't even with people that I was at college with. I went to... First, I was at the University of Missouri-Columbia for two years, and then I went to uh, the Liverpool Institute for Performing Arts in Liverpool, England. Oh, wow. Um, Are you a Liverpool or Everton fan? Uh, neither, really, but if I had to choose one, it would be Liverpool. Okay. Um, but it doesn't matter to me at all. No. Um, and I know it matters a great you deal. You didn't get sucked into it no. when you were there. No. Uh, the, the intensity of... of sports fandom in England is terrifying because you literally just can't sit fans of opposing teams. They can't sit together or there'll be violence. They, un- they literally, I one time witnessed a bunch of grown men being marched to the train station, escorted by police on horseback. And I was like, what is this? And so I said, that's the fans of the opposing team. They're being taken to the train station to leave town. Safely. I'm like, they can't go to a restaurant. They can't go, you know, like, they can't just, like, be in the town. Like, no, you go to the game, and then you right. have to go back to your town. There was a point when it was that way between Star Wars and Star Trek fans, wasn't it? I think there's still <laughs> some rivalry there, but uh, I think by That's, now... I remember as a kid, that was a huge... It definitely tells you divide. something about yourself. I think... A, in the 80s, it was Star Trek fans versus... I like both, but people who are a diehard one or the other it, mm-hmm. it is a, it's a different flavor of a fandom entirely okay so y- so you dressed up as, as George in Missouri or in Liverpool no I wouldn't dress up I never dressed up as him until oh. I started doing the show oh, okay. uh, uh, at UCB uh, so what was the college version uh, well basically like the the special editions came out mm-hmm. of the Star Wars movies where George Lucas like changed things right added some Jab Jab of the Hutt in, yeah. the, in episode 4 and I didn't like any I, I didn't mind the, the some of it was just polishing up the special effects right. and you don't even notice it just looks good but some stuff was really distracting where they'd have, like, mon- like, like uh, you know, creatures walk in front of other characters. Yeah. They literally, like, block the lens, you know. <laughs> and there were, there were just jokes added and things that I didn't really care for. Right. And so me and my friends, I started pretending to be George Lucas. And my friends would interview me as George Lucas, and I would talk about my plans for the new movies. And... Wait. Wait, where were they interviewed? We'd just be on the phone, or okay. it would just be uh, when we were hanging out, like uh, during. Because like, there wasn't the technology for podcasting, or no, this was just a private series. thing that we would do to amuse ourselves. Uh, <laughs> is we would, it would just be at any point. We could be driving somewhere. We could be at a movie, and then before the movie, like a friend of mine would be like, "So, George, uh, do you have any ideas?" And I'd be like, "Yeah, I've got a few ideas. We're gonna, you know." And I just made I would just make up things just based on the idea that. Uh, 
we didn't like the new things that were in the special mm-hmm. editions. I don't think they were targeted at us uh, particularly. I think that a lot of them were things that were like kids like them fine. I think by now the special editions have existed so long that they are they've become the def- the version that more people have seen certainly I think in the beginning would your version of George also talk about his other projects whether it's like Young Indiana Jones absolutely and- yeah I would talk about like Young Indiana Jones Chronicles being like a show that notoriously took the most popular action adventure uh, saga kind of of the 80s and turned it into something that was like good for you that it was like school or to absolutely. be like it was just a, lot, a lot of a lot more learning than learning fighting you know um <laughs> And, uh, yeah, we would talk about anything, and I would, uh, you know, it was just a way, in some ways it was, you know, there's a lot of, and it's got, it's only gotten worse, there's a lot of very angry Star Wars fandom, where Star Wars fans, if they don't like something that's new, uh, they get very angry and hostile, and our way of coping with it was to have fun with the idea, like, that we already knew we loved what we'd seen of Star Wars, and we were completely braced for the reality that maybe we, the new Star Wars movies wouldn't be for us, meaning the, the prequels, right. that they wouldn't be to our liking. And so this was, this was sort of... you're not three years old. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, <laughs> the, it, it's one of those things where when those movies came out, um, I would have I would have liked it. I, mean, I, I, really, I actually like the Disney Star Wars movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're more to my taste as, a, as an audience member. Like, I think if... if Phantom Menace had been what Force Awakens ultimately was, I think I would have been yeah. over the moon. I would have been... Although maybe I wouldn't have liked it as much in 1999 because uh, in some ways I think my enjoyment of Force Awakens had to do with the fact that I'd already experienced three movies that really weren't for me, you know, that really weren't even trying to appeal to me. No, where were you physically and professionally in 1999? Uh, professionally, I was absolutely nowhere. Uh... <laughs> I, I think at, at that point, I was I was nope, I was nope. in London. I was actually I was doing okay at that point. I was in London. I was working as an actor, but specifically when I saw that, I was visiting a friend out in uh, California. Mm-hmm. So I was in LA when I saw the Phantom Menace. So let's go back to to being in the UK. How did you decide to go from Missouri to the UK? I I was a theater major at MU in Columbia, and I wasn't happy there. Um, and I saw a thing in USA Today about uh, how Elvis Costello was going to be teaching classes oh. at a new school that Paul McCartney, Paul McCartney was opening up. It was actually where I think Paul McCartney met George Harrison. Like his, right. it was That's, like a school. He, yeah. Basically, like the building that it had been his like you know middle school or whatever was just rotting in the middle of the city center. Okay. And Paul McCartney put all this money in to open it up as a performing arts academy. Specifically, with a with an eye towards um, preparing people to work in entertainment industry, and I felt like oh that was going to maybe be, I, I, I applied just out of curiosity, and then I ended up getting in, and I thought well maybe this will be a a better move for me because you know you, you're a theater major at a university, and then you get your degree, and then you kind of have to just move to a city and start from nowhere. Right. And so I thought well maybe this is more like going to in some ways a vocational arts school because. They'd put all this... Also, I was going to be part of the first graduating class of this school, and so my calculation was that this school would be very um, invested in making sure that as many people as possible got agents and worked in the... your success fuels the school's success. And I was exactly right, because a lot of us got agents just right away. Uh, So I got an agent immediately in London. I was in a play at the Royal Court, um, and and I was doing okay for a while there in, uh, in England. Um, but it was still, I feel like it was, a, it feels like it was a million miles away from, uh, where I would ultimately end up being in, like everything that I did in London, by the time I moved to America and tried to start again in New York, it sort of was like it had never happened. And then I took a long break where I wasn't really pursuing anything in show business. And it wasn't really until I started doing things at UCB that show business opportunities started coming my way. And I was sort of actively not pursuing them. But your story you know? is not the typical UCB story. Probably not. The typical not. UCB story is well. The typical UCB young, story, young yeah, is a person comes to New York and immediately falls in love with the UCB. Yeah, I lived in New York from 2002 to 2009 and did not take a, so much as a class. <laughs> I went to a show early on, mm-hmm. like in 2004, I think. I went and saw a show and it was great. I remember asking someone, "Hey, how does someone get into a show here?" 
And they said, oh, well, you start by taking classes. And I was like, never mind. Uh, sorry I asked. I didn't. To me, I thought, like, this is a scheme. I don't want to take more. I'd already been to drama school in two countries. I never got anything out of an acting class. Not once. I never felt like. I've any- been on stage in London. It, it really just was like, I'm, not, I'm done taking classes. I'm, you know. And then I finally got to a point where I saw a few more things there. And I thought, well, you know what? I'm just going to. I'm going to take a class and see. And actually, my parents were really encouraging me the whole time. Like, my parents would say things like, you know, Amy Poehler has this comedy theater. Why don't you go take a class? Which is not also, maybe that happens a little bit more now that mm-hmm. people have a, a little bit, the past decade, people have more of an awareness of that it's, it's a path to sure. working in show business. Um, but specifically, my dad, back when he was an actor in Chicago, he had been on a Herald team put together by Del Close uh. before they were even called Herald teams. My dad realized in thinking about it that it was like, oh, he was figuring out the Herald at that point. It's 1971. It was, he's part of a group called the Chicago Extension. And this was one of those periods where Del Close had either fired or uh, been fired or quit the Second City. I was going to say, Second City or at I.O.? Or, no, it was, or he started neither. his own thing. He was like in between because I know that before he would go he back and forth. Yeah. Up. Okay. And uh, so, like, when my dad, you know, my dad remembers very little of what happened that year. You know, he did it for a year. And, you know, naturally, you forget most things you do in improv. You know, you forget until someone mentions it to you again. You know, like, hey, I saw a show where you were playing a grape. And you're like, oh, now I remember. But uh, my dad does remember certain things where, like, when he comes to see shows at UCB now, he'll be like, oh, you do this now. We never had that. You know, like tagging someone out of a scene yeah. or something and be like oh we never did that back then it was just like the language of improv was slightly different in 1971 so they were it's always encouraging slower, yeah. me yeah they were always encouraging me to go to UCB and I was resisting it what uh, changed in 2009 2009 I think it just got to the point where I was like I might as well try it and see if what I like you doing it for work I was working at Barnes & Noble in Union Square. I, I got that job the month I moved to New York I, I spent a couple of years trying to make something happen in New York City and nothing worked. Like, I put on a play. I would try to audition for things. I just couldn't get anybody to pay attention to me. And nothing I did went anywhere. And so I sort of gave up, and I was just working in the bookstore and living in New York. And, and you know, I was writing some things, and then I would just put them in a drawer. I wouldn't, you know, do anything with them. And it was very kind of like... You needed some dollar store therapy. <laughs> yeah, it was very kind of like... Um, creatively lonely because I just didn't have anyone to collaborate with. I didn't have... I wanted to do good creative things and the only way I could really do them was just like by myself and, you know... No, the city can crush. Yeah. and crush the spirit out of it. And the thing is when I took my first class at UCB, I liked it right away and I wasn't... I felt I wasn't good at it right away. I realized in the... Was it because of the break? No, I think it was just because I I realized that a lot of times people will, will take an improv class and they know that they're funny because they've been funny or, or their friends think they're funny and maybe they are funny but that doesn't mean that they know how to do improv it's sort of one of those things where uh, it helps if you're funny but it can also hinder you because you, if you, you don't get that instant gratification of being good at improv also then it feels like why aren't people finding me funny I'm funny well the improv brain is a different it, muscle yeah and some of it has to do with not caring so much whether you're funny because right. don't think you have to just uh, yeah because it use the force so much so much of it is just getting to a point where you are confident in front of an audience so that they feel comfortable you know I always think like there's something about improv where if you go to an improv show as opposed to a sketch show a sketch show the audience knows they're going to watch or a play or anything that's been prepared even something like Saturday Night Live where it's just been prepared that week yeah the expectation of the audience is, okay, you're going to show us something that you've worked on, and it had better be good you, enough you've to warrant that. Yeah, and there's dialogue so, and, and there's costumes. And sort of when you when you present an audience with, uh, we're going to make something up in front of you. The audience's initial thing is kind of fear that it's like, well, it's not going to be good, is it? Because <laughs> you haven't prepared for this, and the preparation is, you know, you have prepared for it in learning how to mm-hmm. do it. But the bar for some, there are some great improv shows that if you tried to make them sketch shows, you'd be like, we don't have anything. <laughs> I've seen scenes that are just about how like two people like a certain food they're eating or something. It's not really a sketch, but it's funny if you see it performed well, you know. Who was your first teacher? My first teacher was Betsy Stover. Okay. 
And uh, and what I realized was I liked it right away, but I also was immediately aware of the fact that I did not feel like I knew how to do it at all. And that intrigued me because I knew that I was funny, and I knew that I was a good actor, and I knew that I could write. But it was like, can you do all of these things while, uh, you know, listening to someone else and being up in front of people? You know, it's sort of like, like I was comfortable performing in front of people, but it was that thing where... It took me a year or so to get to a point where I was like, oh, okay, I think I know what I'm doing, you know. When did you have your first experience with Chris Gethard? Um, probably, I guess I'd been uh, doing improv for close to two years. And I took a class that he, it was the last class he taught at UCB. It was a thing called parentheses where they let like, it was like almost 30 people in the class. And Sounds like Chris. Really, a lot of the Gethard, sh- what became the Gethard Show uh, at MNN, and even when it went on to regular television, a lot of the roots of it were people who were in that class. You know, it was like Noah Foreman, Drew Johnston, uh, uh, Murph Meyer. It was just like a lot of the the core of because he started the MNN show while we were uh, still doing class shows for his class. Okay. He'd been doing the show at the theater for a while, and um, and my original involvement in the show was they wanted to have they needed to have a, f- a pre filmed segment to cover. There was a point where early on the only way they could archive the show was on a mini disc, and they only went thirty five minutes. So they needed something at the halfway point so they could switch discs in recording it. At UCB or at M and N? At M and N. Okay. And um, and I had been I used to make. Um, I used to dub the, and edit these little films to promote improv shows uh, to try to get people to come to improv shows. I would just grab footage from anywhere and redub it to turn it into a, a, a promo. For, mm-hmm. And I did uh, like 28 of these. I did one for every day like of the month of leading up to our shows. I would do all these uh, promos for the parentheses shows. And so Gether was like, could you come up with some short films uh, to... Um, cover the little like two two and a half minute films to cover the swapping out of the discs and so i did it with another uh, um an illustrator and cartoonist she did some animation uh named mael Dalivo. oh yeah i follow her so we did these things called the lone cornmeal machine mm-hmm. for like the first 13 weeks of the gethard show and they were we get a suggestion on social media and we would make the film she'd make all the visuals and then i would edit it and create the soundtrack so I would, she would create what it looked like, and then I would decide what that meant. I would turn it into content. And, and it was exhausting because there was one week where Mael did, I'm not exaggerating, she did over 45 minutes of stop-motion animation that I had to edit into a two-and-a-half-minute film. No. And I had less than two hours to do it. And I was just like, Mael, this is devastating to me because I'm having to cut everything. Like, right. She, it, she made so it, much. She, she made close to a feature film. In just in terms of raw footage, oh, I, and then I was I like, feel bad. and exactly. and I had to edit it into it had to be like two minutes and forty five seconds total, um, and then and then off of that I started running for president. I was the presidential candidate for the Chris Gethard Show. Yeah, in twenty twelve. Yeah, I lost the election. Um, you did you should have run? Why aren't you running this this time around in twenty twelve? Because there's no point. There's no point. I, well, I ran again in twenty sixteen, and it didn't matter. Um, because I also I specifically ran in 2016 for attention, but not for anyone to vote for me because I knew that uh, it was too. Uh, you know, I was a in 2012 being a novelty candidate from a weird TV show mm-hmm. uh, was quaint because you knew that it was safe that America would never uh, actually elect someone who was a right. joke, um, and yet they they went ahead and How did many it. Votes did you get? I got. Almost 10 votes in 2012. Actual votes. A lot of them in New Jersey because there's there are some states where you can write in. Mm-hmm. Some states have, like, really strict policies about write-in and Gethard's a candidates. Jersey guy, so he's yeah. got more pull there. Um, yeah, but it wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't uh, much... spoiler. Well, mu- much like Donald Trump, I didn't actually want to be president. I was doing it as a joke. Right. And his version is the nightmare because he ruined his own life. Yeah. Um, he's never been less happy than he is now. Were you happy working on the president show? Uh, yeah, that was really fun, because, especially because I had worked with uh, Tamanik. I was the director of Trump Dump, which was the UCB version of what became the president show. 
And so, uh, because of Taminix at Pal and we like working together, he always would throw me, uh, I, as often as I could be, I was, uh, that was actually a great year because the Gethard Show moved to True TV and I was the warm up comic for the Gethard Show, the whole run of its, uh, post MNN show run. And was that a role that suited you or just a role that found you? The warm up, um, yeah. I, it really suited me, and it was specifically... It would only work for a show that would allow me to do whatever I wanted because it really was... Like, it, me doing the warm-up was its own show. Like, because so, sometimes I would do it for, like, 45 minutes to an hour. I would just do... Things would get so crazy. And, and I also, like, didn't want to repeat myself. I'd have recurring bits, but I wanted each warm-up to be a different experience for the audience. And most warm-up comics, that's not what they do. Most warm-up comics... They have a shtick, and they right, do it, a, and it's like, a let's do a dance contest, let's throw t-shirts. This is how we warm up with the audience. But sometimes I would do, a, there was one warm-up where I was talking to the audience, and I somehow got, got talking about Richard Jewell. Do you remember Richard Jewell, the guy he, who saved he, the 1996 uh, he was accused Olympics? of being the bomber in Yeah, Atlanta, and Atlanta no one in this Gethard Show millennial audience had heard of Richard Jewell, so I was like, <laughs> okay. I'm going to tell you guys about Richard Jewell because there should be statues of this guy. He was a hero and they done him wrong. I think they're making a movie now. They are. They're making a movie of him right now. And uh, But Gethard comes in and I'm just in the middle of talking about Richard Jewell and Gethard's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm doing the warm-up, Chris. <laughs> and it was tremendously thrilling to be able to... Um, you know, like even there, there's footage if you see uh, the first episode we did for... Because originally I did the warm-up uh, for the Comedy Central pilot that has never been seen, oh. didn't get picked up, and uh, Michael Sarah was the guest, and it was a really fun episode. But it was, uh, it was also like we had to do the show and then do it again. It was a little oh, bit of weird. a bummer because they, it, they were sort of trying to fit a, a, a square peg into a round hole, kind of. It was yeah. sort of like, which is I think why it didn't get picked up um, there. But that was the first time I did the warm-up, and I ended up having to do a lot more warm-up than anyone. Like, I've had 10 minutes of material, and I had to perform for hours. With True, didn't some of that get broadcast because they were using social media? Some of it did. Yeah, they had a live stream for... Uh, that was... Uh, uh, Fusion had a live stream where you could see the whole taping. And it actually got kind of controversial because in the first season, they would cut it down to a 22-minute episode. Mm-hmm. But the fans would want to watch the three-hour live stream. They're yeah. like, that's the show. And Guthrie would be like, no, the show is what we put on the air. <laughs> but, you know, you can't argue with the fact that for fans of the Gather show, what would you rather watch? A three-hour kind of, like, messy uh, stop-and-start disaster uh-huh. or the more polite, chop-together, you know, version. It was hard to convince a lot of the fans not to watch the extended version <laughs> and to view that, you know. Um but, like, in the f- very first episode we did on Fusion, which was the one that uh, Abby and Alana were on, mm-hmm. there was a break, because some of the breaks were going too long, and uh, I started improvising a chant that ended up becoming, like, a, an eight-minute-long song that it called The Body Don't Stop. It was me and Shannon O'Neill, and it ended with, like, the, ba- the everyone on their feet jumping and, and sweating and mm-hmm. dancing. The Body you, Didn't if, Stop. And it was... It was one of those things where as it went along, they was sort of like, they would have to sometimes tell me, you know, like, it actually isn't great if you get the audience sweating so that the show goes to commercial and then when they come back, <laughs> the audience looks like something happened and the viewer at home has no idea what it is. But I think that was also, I was always pushing against that because I always felt like the best of that show was when you were breaking the rules and it wasn't right. normal television. To me, I always thought, why does it matter? The audience would be like, why are they sweating? And they'd be like, it's because it's the Gethard show, you know? Was Chris encouraging or discouraging of that? He was encouraging of it, mostly. Every now and then he would maybe uh, get nervous about something here or there, or he'd be having his own anxiety having to do with the network. or the pre- there'd be, He had a lot on his mind doing that show. But for the most part, you know, I think the fact that they asked me back every year was a sign that, like, there was never a point where anyone told me, like, stop being weird or stop doing this, because I think they knew that... Uh, like, there was another show during the run of the other show that they asked me to be their warm-up comic and I was just like not interested because I knew what it was I knew what that job would be I knew that like no other show was going to let me do whatever I wanted you know this is reminding me of your character arc in um, season two of Mrs. Maisel right where and I loved your like I didn't know you all of a sudden you're there in the Catskills yeah and your whole point is you're breaking the rules by being there but you're also blending in 
Right. It's, it's a guy who pretends to work at a resort so he can live there for free and eat the food. It's that free room and board. And he just walks around and looks like he belongs there. Yeah. And there's such a big staff at those resorts that nobody... Uh, uh, recognizes that he's uh, not supposed to be there. But how much of that like appealed to you, like on a visceral, like this is my comedy is I'm breaking the rules, but also just sort of fitting in so people don't even notice that I'm. Yeah, I honestly never of thought of the connection to there. <laughs> like I always tend to think a lot of times when I book acting roles, I tend to book roles that are like weirdos or creeps, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was thinking of it more from. I hadn't thought of how relatable it was. I was thinking of it in terms of like this is a w- creepy weirdo who lives at yeah. the resort. Uh, but you're right; there is a there is an, an analog to uh, me being a, a, a trying to break the rules while also uh, convincing people that I belong someplace. You know, how much of that fuels the George Lucas talk show? A fair amount, I think, because I mean, the uh, I mean, we should, probably, we should probably mention at the moment. You know, I've been doing the George Lucas Talk Show since uh, for over five years now at UCB, and in some senses, it's a classic talk show. It's just like it has the rules of you know you have guests and you uh, try to have a funny conversation. You know, it's not a million miles away from something like the Dick Cavett Show, uh, but the heightening the game of it. Yeah, in UCB terms, it has that- a. Is is a, that you're playing a real person. Yeah, I'm playing retired film, billionaire filmmaker George Lucas. And uh, Griffin Newman plays my sidekick, Watto, uh, the character from the first two prequels. Uh, and Not Jar Jar. Not Jar Jar. Sean Diston was Jar Jar for the first few years, but then he went out to, uh, he went out to Hollywood to uh, work in uh, uh, TV shows and be very successful. Um, uh, but and the, Griffin was on the tick, so yes, he, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and the thing is, I think like it is a real talk show that has this fun little frame to it. And in some ways, what I find is that the device of pretending to be a character and asking your guests to play along actually creates um, interesting conversations because uh, it they sort of because they have to focus on one thing, they sort of forget about the fact that they're there and they're themselves and they're having to, you know, like... Answer personal yeah, questions. About yeah, it, it gives them a thing to... Um, it, sort of, it sort of was like there was a point in improv classes where they would ask you to do a herald backwards or to do a dramatic herald or to do... They'd give you a gimmick that you'd forget about all the things you were actually worried about and you'd do your, uh, you know, or you were doing, like, a musical herald or something. You'd be so nervous about the new thing, which was like, oh, God, i got to make rhymes or something, that your the stuff you had learned would kick in and you would actually do good improv that would be grounded and would uh, uh, be effective. Who was on that first show? The first George Lucas talk show that I did? Ooh, let me think who was on the first one. Tammy Sager was on it, Will Hines, um, Connor O'Malley. Um, I'm trying to remember, it's been so long since we did that. But the the first test show that we did, we we, we were doing it. I, I, I did two shows before going to UCB with it because I wanted to test it out, and make sure it worked as an idea. And we did them at a place called the Producers Club, and I rented them, and I paid for the uh, rental. And I, I did two shows, and I lost hundreds of dollars. Uh, it just cost me money to was, like. Was that before or after you did Don't Think Twice? Uh, that was before. That was before. <laughs> so, so yeah, making that movie was like, oh yeah, spending money on a place that I can't afford. Well, it was an interesting thing uh, because it was such a relief to be able to do it at UCB because uh, I don't lose money doing the show at UCB. Right. Uh, it, it's it's one of those things where the the cost of promoting it, and also no one came to the show as a producer. In one of the one of the, the second of the two shows, we had more people in the show than in the audience. Which is always a humiliating rate. I guess that's getting ratioed, right? Where you're, uh, oh, the, yeah. where the audience is fewer than the performers. So you just feel like, oh, it shouldn't work this way. Um, someone once told me a story about uh, going to see a production of Hamlet in Los Angeles, and it was so bad, and they and they were doing the full, the the long version of Hamlet, mm-hmm. and they got to the intermission, and they realized that everyone else had left, and they were the only two people left in the audience. And so they were like, we got to get out of here. So they went to the parking lot, to their car, and the cast ran out of the theater after them and begged them to come back in because if they left, there was no reason to keep doing the show. Right. And so they went back in, and they had to sit through the second half of Hamlet, knowing that the audience knew that they would want, tried to flee. 
Did um, they make it worth the audience's time? Uh, I, I, I don't <laughs> like, think it ended well for really it. Yeah, we're going to really do our best. <laughs> but no, doing the UCB, the, the third show we did was a sold-out crowd. Mm-hmm. It was a packed theater, and, uh, and we've had good audiences ever since then. And there is, there is something exciting about being able to do a show to a good audience because now the show has an audience that comes to see it, but it's also that UCB is a place that people know they can go to and the quality will be good and it won't cost that much to see a show. And I don't have to lose money promoting it or making postcards. They'll do all the promotion for me. Um, But at the moment, uh, recently, once we sort of like celebrated our five-year anniversary, uh, Patrick Cotnar, who's the producer of the show and... And helps me. Uh, he books the guests for the show. Um, we were approached by uh, a couple of filmmakers who wanted to make it. They wanted to fit, to capture what the show was. They've been going to see it for a while. Documentary filmmakers. And originally, their pitch to me was like, "What if we make a you know like a mockumentary where we film the show, but then we'll like film interstitial stuff." As if you're George Lucas and you have like a writer's room, or you have, you know, like as if it's a oh, real right. talk Behind show. Behind the scenes of the making of yeah, the George Lucas talk show. Which I feel like I and I felt like oh, I feel like I already sort of did that because I made a mockumentary about the presidential campaign uh, for the Gethard show, where I had a day of like campaign meetings that made it look like we were really working hard to you know, and I was like I feel like I've done that before, and I feel like the amount of work that, that would take to even come close to being what I would want it to be. Because uh, this is a real rinky-dink show. Like, I buy a $2 bottle of white spray to spray my hair for George Lucas. And I just feel like this is not going to look impressive. Like, <laughs> as HD. a... Yeah, if we make a movie, and it's going to look uh, so uh, much like Amateur Hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, But I said to them, you know, if you guys want to actually document what this show is as a, like, New York City cult comedy weird show... That has no prospects of becoming anything else. Like, this documentary is probably the apex of what it could become in other media. Is a, a show where it's like, hey, look at this weird show. Because right. I think, like, I've talked to people about making it a podcast. And I feel like it's just, it's too, um, it works as a show where you know you're coming to a comedy theater and seeing a guy with sprayed hair. I feel like it would be another thing if I did it as a podcast. Uh, and you're saying this as someone who has a 12-hour podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I have other, like, uh, yeah, I have a 12-hour podcast. <laughs> that like, works. You're like, listening to podcasts for 12 hours, now that's, that'll work. Well, listening to somebody be George Lucas, no, that's not. <laughs> well, I think it's one of those things where, like, my impression of Lucas uh, in the show, mm-hmm. often I will sort of veer away from it almost within seconds of starting it. Like, because I'll start off, I'll you're run around. Like the th- with Trump. Well, it's one of those things where, like. Where you're so spot on, it's. Scary. Well, there's a there's a similarity in the sense that like some of Atamnik's Trump impression is also him. Yeah, and uh, a lot of my George Lucas impression it's a hybrid of my weird character version of him and me, mm-hmm. and it becomes a ve- vessel for me to be a weird version of myself. But I don't want to do the whole you know the whole, uh, an hour podcast where I just talk in the George Lucas voice. You know what I mean? Like, there's something... Yeah. I have to start <laughs> using my voice, which is a little bit brighter and more dynamic, maybe. <laughs> um, I, I just imagine if it became a podcast that 90% of the people who would be searching for it would think it was mm-hmm. that George Lucas had a podcast, and they'd just be angry. It's like when you find a parody account on Twitter and you think it's the real person, yeah. and then you're like, oh, they're not on Twitter. They This is just... And it's, this is just somebody who got the handle. Yeah, I didn't want to deal with a bunch of people... Uh, looking for something else and being disappointed, and you know. So, so the these people who are making the documentary, this is kind of well, they're sort of. It, it, I sort of picture them as like this is a show that has found its level, and it doesn't have ambitions to become a TV show because the second it tried to be a TV show, the first thing that would happen is a lawyer or a network would say, "Well, here's the things you can't do, and here's the things you can never, you know, you can't play this song, you can't show this clip, you can't, you know." Right can't do any of these things this because the reason it's been allowed to exist is because it's somewhat under the radar uh we've never gotten a cease and desist this film has never been in contact no with skywalker ranch and i think because they know what it is i mean we've been listed in the new york times i know there's somebody somewhere has seen that it exists mm-hmm. and i think they've realized that this is one of those things where it's like this is better to just let it exist rather than for us to sweep in like a bunch of assholes and say you can't do this thing you know 
Um, there are times when it's like how people didn't want to shut down that production of Alien that that uh, middle right. school did because they were like, no, but. Nobody wanted to, you know, Sigourney Weaver shows up and introduces it because she's like, this is a fun thing it's a tribute. that exists, it's, yeah. but it's a completely illegal show. <laughs> they had no right to do Alien, but everybody understands that it. it's like, well, sometimes you just let the fun thing exist in the world. And, and so the documentary is partly about that. It's also partly about the fact that, like, it's not that I don't have ambitions to have a quote-unquote real show. It's just it wouldn't be this. This is, one of, this is almost like... Um, like, this is my Life in Hell, which was... Life in Hell was the Matt Groening comic strip that he did. Before The Simpsons. Before The Simpsons. And he was... A, James L. Brooks wanted to buy Life in Hell to have it be little animated segments on the Tracy Ullman show. And when Matt Groening was sitting in the waiting room about to pitch... Have the pitch meeting with them, he, he realized, I don't want to sell my comic strip because I'll lose my, my thing that I created for me. So he invented The Simpsons based on his family... And then he sold that. And it's like he never had to give... And George Lucas Talk Show is my thing that's like, I want this to be what it is. I don't want it to be... Because uh, even the Gethard Show somewhat like, as great as it was to be able to go to Fusion and then True TV with it, you know, I've already experienced the arc of what happens when you have something that has total freedom and then it suddenly has to exist in a reality where uh, that kind of freedom is not possible. And... If I were to do a real show, I'd want to create it with all that in mind so that it could be what I wanted it to be rather than trying to squeeze this weird thing into some other... Uh, do you already have that idea or are you just waiting to be in the waiting room for, for the pitch meeting of George Lucas Talk Show to come up with I mean, the I, real I, Ratliff I have some ideas project. in the chamber that if anyone was like, we want to meet with you... I had a show that almost happened a couple of years ago on a platform that was desperate for a show, which that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a platform that's like, and they liked me, uh-huh. and they liked, I was doing a show, I was used to be. on CISO? No. Because uh, you were on CISO. I was on CISO, and if, if C- and if CISO had continued to exist, I think I would have a show on there. Mm-hmm. That's the sad thing, because I, I believe that 100%, that uh, a year after CISO folded, I was basically told by people, I was like, oh, who had worked at CISO, oh, if we'd known about this show a year ago, we would have, not, not George Lucas Star Show, but a different yeah, show that I was doing, they were like, oh, we would have made this. Okay. Um, with, uh, I did a show at ECB called Way Past Your Bedtime, which was a talk show where I played uh, uh, a child who hosts a talk show in his bedroom after he's supposed to be gone to bed. And everything in the room of the talk show was like his toys come to life. Mm-hmm. That was the band. His sidekick was a um, was a stuffed bunny rabbit played by Alex Song. Uh, his warm-up comic was the monster that lives in the closet that was like the manifestational of his yeah. fears. But the guests would be real, and they'd be adults who would come in through the second-story window. And it was designed as a show that it's like, please, buy this show. You can watch some of the episodes of it online, but it's very like... It's exactly what it was, which was... Um, the, the questions were all... Um, very like heartfelt and kind of innocent and it, mm-hmm. it brought out a different kind of interview in people because you know like uh, we had like Ira Glass has been a guest on both the George Lucas talk show and Way Past Your Bedtime and it's the kind of thing where like when you have a good guest and they're playing along with uh, a comedic conceit yeah. in the case of this one I was playing I was playing a character named Logan Foster Wallace who was this precocious child and a lot of the questions would be about things he was afraid of or uh, there would be a segment of the show where everyone would uh, draw something they would draw something and compare their Did drawings. Did you shave for that? Yeah. Okay. Except when I couldn't for work. And then the workaround was that I had a I would wear a onesie uh-huh. uh, for the show. And uh, like a head to toe. like, And it was very hot wearing that, I have to say. it was. I would be sweating through the whole show. When I couldn't shave for uh-huh. work reasons, if I booked a show and I had to have a beard, uh, then I would dress up like a Wookiee. And I would put, I would put like, I would keep the beard, but I would make myself look like Chewbacca. Okay. And I would wear a Chewbacca onesie. So, uh, so it's like when a child like dresses up in a costume okay. to go to sleep. What? Who looks? Who wears it better? You in a onesie or John Gimberling in a diaper? Oh, different effect entirely. Uh, John Gimberling's baby character uh, is one of the great is one of the great comedic creations. I think the main difference is I think his is upsetting. And is deliberately almost like trying to... 
his is very like trying to needle you. Like when he's interacting with someone as that oh, yeah. baby character. I'm more interested fashion wise. Who, who wears it better? Uh, I'll, I'm going to go ahead and say Gamber. Like, although us, I, I do us, think fashion police. I think I pulled off the onesie very well, but I don't think I can compete with Gamberling as a baby. And do you feel more at home acting or being a talk show host? Um, it's interesting because uh, I like acting. Um, but it's less creatively fulfilling to me than doing my own things. And there's still acting involved in doing this, sh- doing George Lucas talk show, doing way past your bed, doing any kind of thing. I still feel like there it's, it's scratching a lot of the same itch. Um, uh, so I probably, I probably prefer doing my own thing. Acting is a little bit more of a job, you know? Uh, and I think I'm good at it, but it definitely certainly like acting in, uh, TV and film stuff, you know, you show up and it's very, it's a lot of waiting and you film for a few minutes and then you wait some more and it's very, you know, it's uh, not as, f- it's more fun. I like having done TV shows more than I like doing them. <laughs> you know, like uh, I just filmed a, a, a one-line part in the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt interactive oh. uh, special that's coming out. So does that mean that your line sometimes appears? Yes. <laughs> there's only on one, there's, I believe, I, I know very little about what... It's interactive, I, which means you have I to think do it's gonna be, to get to your I, I think line. it's going to be amazing. My, I have no comprehension of what... There, I know my, the amount I saw of script was so little. And, <laughs> and what, even like, I think what main cast members have seen is just mm-hmm. a fraction of what the overall thing would be. I believe that there's only one version of it in which you would see me speak... But you would see me in multiple versions of it, um, and it was it was. I filmed three days on it, and it was in three very crazy days of filming, and it was fun. But it was like hard work, and I'm gl- I'm more glad to have done it than I was. Well, I'm happier having done it than I was. Like in I can't the, I can't moments. wait to see it. I'm really so thrilled that I got a chance to be part of that universe because I thought I'd missed my shot because the show had ended. Yeah. I thought, well, I'll never get to be on that show. And so I'm very happy to be part of that, but I'm always happier that it's over than I am when I'm actually doing it. So um, before I let you go, back to your life as Connor Ratliff. Yeah. um, What would you say, going back to that period where you were just working at the bookstore, Yeah. what would you say to those aspiring comedians and actors out there who are in that fallow period? Um, it's, it's hard for me to give advice, I think, because I'm, I'm still very reluctantly in show business, like in the sense that like things only work out for me when I'm not really seeking them. When I'm trying really hard to make something happen, things start to, doors start closing for me. (laughs) And truly nothing clicked for me until I was literally telling managers who'd approach me I'm not interested in being in show business like I was doing the stepfathers and ASCAD at UCB and I'd have a a manager approach me and I was like I'm not interested in working in show business and I just like doing shows at UCB Uh, and I like my Fridays and my Sundays I I, because creatively Mm -hmm. that's my sandbox that's where I can do whatever I want for an, an audience that gets it and appreciates it and I was very... I'm still very uneasy because every time I try to... uh, Every time I really want something, which is rare now in terms of like, ooh, I want to be on that show. I really want to get this role. It never works out. The only time it works out for me is when I have a... like Even like Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, I already had a gig for July that I was looking forward to, which was going to the Woolly Mammoth Theater in D.C. for a month to do this... UCB was doing this residency there, and doing Marvelous Mrs. Maisel meant that I was going to miss half of that run, which I was really looking forward to. So it was ruining my plans. <laughs> to and be so, an award-winning. Yeah, and so I was like, ugh. I was like auditioning for it. I'm like, I can't do this if I get it because I've already got plans. Then I booked it. And I was like, ugh. I got to film it tomorrow, and then I got to film it next week, and I got to cancel half of this <laughs> run. And I feel like it's always that. Whenever I'm, it's almost like they can sense like he doesn't want it that badly. We should give it to him. Um, even now, there's a there's a project. There, there's a couple of projects I'm doing uh, for Earwolf, mm-hmm. 
there's a couple of podcast things, and there's one of them that I think, like, like I'm excited about this documentary, the the because I'm excited to document and see what they get out of it. Like, it, I feel like it's the kind of thing that I I would have liked to have seen growing up about the comedy. Like, if I sort of think about like in the '90s, if I had heard they were making a, a documentary about a show at like a comedy show at Largo in L.A. I'd be like, oh, I've read about that, but I don't know what that's like. I'd like to right. see what it's like. Especially as a kid in Missouri. Yeah. Uh, so my hope is that like, uh, if, we, if we get the Kickstarter funded uh, for it, if we meet our, our goal, uh, I'm hopeful of that. But the, one of these podcast things that I'm developing, I, it scares me a little because I want it to happen so badly that I can already feel resistance because I think it's... I think it's uh, so I guess my advice for people is find a way to uh, not make it the most important thing. Make it a priority, but not make it – you can't make this business uh, – if they know that you need them, they will push you away. There has to be some element of that you're okay with yourself if it doesn't happen. And it wasn't until I got to the point where I was like, I'll be fine just working in a bookstore. I don't need – to do well in show mm-hmm. business or, or even to work at all in show business to be happy. You have to let go. Yeah. And bef- there was a point where it was all I wanted and nothing would happen. And I think there's something repellent about it. And it shouldn't be because in an ideal world, you would think that really wanting it to happen would be like a good thing. But it actually comes across as like too needy. Yeah. And there's, I, I think there's also something that maybe is a little bit mean about the business almost it's like oh are you hungry for this sandwich well it's not for you it's for this person who doesn't need a sandwich you know it's like the same reason that like people get you know movie stars go to award shows and they get a bag that's got like an ipad in it or something and you're like why like yeah wealthy people get free stuff wealthy people get free stuff that like not uh, poor people even people who are just like working people who are struggling to make ends meet would love a free iPad (laughs) and they'll never get a free iPad in my life I'll never get a free iPad unless I get to the point where I don't need a free iPad and then I'll get all the free iPads that a person could imagine well Connor thank you so much for sitting with me thank you Um, may the force be with you and also with you This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks first.